So as I prepared for the sermon this week, looking at this idea of, of pride and humiliation, it made me think of a, a weird thing to think about, but it, it kind of makes sense in my mind anyway, and that is this concept of advanced degrees. Uh, more and more in the United States, we value degrees almost inherently. When someone says they have a particular kind of degree, we attribute expertise to that person. You see this all the time, particularly in the news, where a person is just an expert because they have like some letters after their name or something like that. It gives them wisdom, ultimate authority in a subject. I mean, this is evidenced by the fact that the number of PhDs has increased almost 40% in the last 20 years. That is a significant increase in this country. By all accounts, our society is not getting smarter, though, which is strange, but probably more and more of a downward trend as reading and math scores continue to plummet across the United States. People are not gaining wisdom, even though we are gaining more degrees. All this to say that when a person tells me that they have a Ph.D., I tend to believe them meaning that I believe that they have a Ph.D. It's not necessarily that hard to get one anymore. I don't think they're lying to me about whether or not they have that degree, but yet because I acknowledge the fact that they have this piece of paper doesn't mean that I trust in their knowledge of their subject or their ability to think their way out of a paper bag. They have to demonstrate that to me, just like I would have to do that for anyone else. They have to show me that something is there. Just because they ask that I call them doctor doesn't make them a thinker. In our text today, we'll be dealing with this idea of acknowledgement versus belief. As we have Nebuchadnezzar having to face the wrath of God promised to him in the first part of this chapter that we looked at last week. The end, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's sovereignty. He absolutely does. He gives a correct statement concerning the sovereignty of God. But does he believe it? I don't know the answer to that question, honestly. But it should cause us to ask that question and answer that question for ourselves. This text for me has always served to show God's ability to call anyone to himself as he pleases to make low the proud however he sees fit. Yet humility is not a requirement for salvation. Repentance and belief in Jesus Christ are. So as we move through this text, we're going to consider that idea, breaking it up into three main points. First, arrogance and humiliation. Second, restoration and praise. And then lastly, redemption and belief. With that, let's look together at Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat the grass like an ox, and have seven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
Immediately the word of, was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, <clears throat> my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Remember last week, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 4, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 4, he says that he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. But then in verse 5, he had a dream and his dream made him afraid. Remember that he dreamed that he was a big tree and he was growing and prospering and the world around him was doing really well. But then this voice came down from heaven that that tree should be chopped down and stripped of its limbs, its leaves, and its fruit. And not only that, but that it be subjected to the earth. That it be confined to eat the grass and be given the mind of a beast. Nebuchadnezzar asked the magicians and whatnot to interpret that. And of course, they couldn't or they wouldn't. And Nebuchadnezzar then asked Daniel, who was able to give him the truth. And even though this was a very hard truth, Daniel was faithful to the task. The truth was that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be subjected to the truth of this dream after a period of time. Well, that period of time was 12 months, and that's when it happens. Nebuchadnezzar is completely undone. Look at verses 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. All this, talking about the previous chapter. As we look at this, not only should we consider that this for the life of an unbeliever, like Nebuchadnezzar, absolutely, this is something that God is able to do. He is able to humble whomever He pleases, as we see at the end of this chapter. As we mentioned last week, we need to look at this for believers as well. The discipline from the Lord is a normal part of the life of a believer, and we, in fact, should expect this from a loving father. Father who doesn't discipline his children doesn't love his children. Hebrews 12:11 says for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant yet or but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we consider this process in our own lives consider how it yields that fruit of righteousness that we all need and even should crave even for a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar, we see a glimpse of that. It brings us to the first point, arrogance and humiliation. Look with me again at verses 29 and 30. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Anyone can read these words and see that Nebuchadnezzar's words are obviously arrogant and prideful. It's something that we always recognize when someone else says, but we rarely recognize it when it comes to our own hearts. We often don't recognize this kind of pride, the kind of pride that says, 
I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. That kind of pride is very easy to slip into, even for the believer. We think of pride as a kind of flamboyant and kind of boastful thing that's easy to recognize, like Nebuchadnezzar going out on his roof and look at all the things I've made. Of course, that's prideful, but many times pride shows itself in contentment in things that are passing away and finding righteousness and personal accomplishment and comfort and security. As Nebuchadnezzar surveys all that is around him, he glories in what he believes he has done on his own. He doesn't know that behind the scenes, God causes rulers to rise up. And he's about to find out in a very real way that God also causes them to fall down. The writer of Proverbs understood this concept very well. Many times through the book of Proverbs, you you get this idea of the prideful person versus the humble person, and the product of both of them are compared with one another. But I think Proverbs 11 has a great picture of this, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. And as we read through this section of Proverbs 11, what I want you to look at, is what I want you to consider is Nebuchadnezzar as this prideful person that the writer of Proverbs is talking about. It says this, starting at verse 2 of Proverbs chapter 11. It says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. could keep going on there, but nearly... Everyone has heard this concept of when pride comes, then comes the fall. But here you read a different word, and I think a better word for that. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Because disgrace or shame is the opposite of pride. And so with pride comes this shame that actually occurs when people are feeling that heart of pride in and of themselves, and the Lord deals with them. The rest of the verses show this idea continuously. The crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. The wicked falls by his own wickedness. The treacherous are taken captive by their own lust. When the wicked dies, any hope that they have perishes with them. They have no hope that lasts beyond themselves. For Nebuchadnezzar, he saw his kingdom, and in it he placed his hope. Now it's going to be taken from him, at least for a time. Look with me back, Daniel chapter 4, verses 31 through 33. While the words were still in the king's mouth, it's almost as if the Lord interrupted him here, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and 
Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. What I want us to notice here is it wasn't just that his kingdom was taken from him. Right? It's not that just, not that the Lord just caused his kingdom to be removed from him, but he completely humiliated him as well. I mean, if you just look at the most plain reading of this text, what's going on here? This man goes from ease and prosperity in his palace to the pasture where he's eating grass and he's growing out his hair and his nails so long that he's just kind of unrecognizable as even a person. It's probably seen as like someone who's insane. Verse 16 tells us, back what we talked about last week, tells us that his mind would be changed from that of a man to that of a beast. And so not even having a, a mind that is able to reason, and he talks about that, that his reason comes back to him in a little bit. So he wasn't even able to, to, to reason out anything. Eating grass seemed perfectly reasonable to him. Growing his hair out and his nails out seemed like a perfectly reasonable thing to do for an animal out in the pasture. This is a man who built a 90-foot golden image of himself. He wanted people to bow down to that image. And if they weren't, he was going to throw them in a special fiery furnace who had just surveyed all that was his and said, very good. And now he's turned into one of the beasts that once received shade under the great tree Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Daniel's warning to him back in 27. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. If you could just turn from your wickedness, perhaps then there would be a chance for mercy. Instead, the Lord gave him justice. And like all justice, it's deserved and it's good. I've been in ministry for a long time and I've seen all kinds of situations where I could look at it or I can even look back all these years later and say about that situation, I think that what was going on there was the direct judgment of the Lord on those people. I don't know. The Lord doesn't really talk to me about those things. But whether it's situations in our nation or even other nations, people that I've, you know, families that I've ministered to, individual people, believers, unbelievers, whatever it is, there are times when I've wondered, is this God's judgment on this person? And I often think about this particular passage when I'm considering that. Because God didn't stop doing that. He hasn't just stopped doing that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, He's somebody who doesn't act in this way. Of course He does. We read that in Hebrews, right? He he disciplines His own people. And we know to the unbeliever He gives the same. But ultimately, we can't know the answer to that question this side of heaven. And even in heaven, we may get there one day and the Lord is just going to say, that is my business. And we'll have to be okay with that. And that's fine. But what we can know 
concerning the Lord's business are His ultimate purposes because those things He has revealed to us on the pages of His Word. While we may not know that purpose as the particular event unfolds and even the ins and outs of that event or why a particular thing is happening to us or to someone else, we can ultimately know that His purpose is to receive glory for it. That the unbeliever will ultimately receive justice. That the believer will ultimately receive mercy. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That every unbeliever will get what they deserve. And that sounds harsh to say it that way, but truth be told, that is exactly what they want. They want an eternity away from God and they will get what they want. And that is what they deserve. Every believer will get the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that even though we struggle and kick against the goads at times, even though we act as if we don't want that thing, He's going to give it to us anyway. And really, that's what we want in our heart, right? That's what we want as believers. He is making us more and more to want that thing, even though we fight against it. And God will use these times of judgment to bring about those things in His timing. And it could be that He uses judgment to bring those things about in Nebuchadnezzar's life here. Nebuchadnezzar was told that he would receive his kingdom again after a period of time, and he did. This wasn't an ultimate restoration, but it happened for a time. I don't understand why God doesn't simply do things that I want for Him to do, right? Or the way that I would do them. I don't understand why sin and misery have to be a part of our life in Christ. It would seem that in Christ we would have done away with all the sin and misery and that we can now live in Him. Were the choice left up to me, I would just want all that whisked away as soon as we're converted into Christ in order to give up this battle that we have against the flesh, right? That we would win that. Yet, but for His eternal purposes, we are in the midst of it. I compare it to a time when my children were much younger and having to teach them right from wrong and then just the basic way of being civilized in our society. And it's hard to teach little kids that thing. But even now as they're older, teaching them to live in an adult world that is full of traps and snares and lies. For a time, it seems difficult and painful. But I have to trust that even in the pain that I experience or the pain that our children experience or whatever, that what He says is true, that this will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Even for Nebuchadnezzar, there was fruit. While it may not accomplish his conversion to faith, it was in the one true God. It did bring him to finally acknowledge that one true God so that God would receive the glory. And that brings me to the next point restoration and praise. Look with me at verses 34 and 35 again. The end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will amongst the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, 
what have you done? The Lord has appointed an amount of time that Nebuchadnezzar was to have this state of humiliation. And at the end of that time, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he praised the Lord. He tells us that his reason returned to him. And in his reasonable state, he was able to make these affirmations concerning the decree of God. When I read this, the first thing that came to my mind was when the Lord Jesus was in Jerusalem and the Pharisees were upset that His disciples were praising His name and shouting loudly the praises of God. And he asked, they, the Pharisees asked Jesus to rebuke His disciples for praising Him so loudly. And Jesus' response was, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. God will get His glory. He will do whatever He pleases to do that. If He needs to rise up stones to praise His name, He will do just that. And in this case, He did it through Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar, God received glory from one of the most powerful men of the world by making him like a beast. And now He receives glory from His mouth. Nebuchadnezzar, by praising the name of God. God can raise up worshipers from the stones, yet He considers us. And He took our hearts of stone and made them in the hearts of flesh. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to acknowledge the decree of God to, to, to do as He pleases, exactly what He should recognize from God, right? So much so that none can say to the Lord, what have you done? Meaning that no one is able to question God and His ways. Sure, you can ask questions of Him or question Him, but those questions are meaningless. They just kind of fall off of Him. Because who can say to God, what have you done? Because He does as He pleases. For Nebuchadnezzar, this was what he thought about himself, right? Up to this point in the book, Nebuchadnezzar has done as he pleased. And he thought of himself, who can question me? Who can question what I have? But now he's come to know the one to whom this attribute actually applies. I can't help but think of the prodigal son here as well from Luke chapter 15. Let me encourage you to to read Luke chapter 15 through this week and study that. I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar represents the the prodigal son here that that comes back and, and receives salvation, or at least what we you know from the from the story there. But this idea of the prodigal son, there's a point in the story, and you guys, you're probably familiar with that story from Luke chapter 15. I won't read the whole thing. But there's a point in the story when the lost son reaches his lowest point, right? And he's taken all the father's money and he's squandered the wealth and he's sleeping with the pigs and eating pig food as a Hebrew son. And he's spent his entire inheritance. And verse 17 of that chapter says, but when he came to himself, I see this as Nebuchadnezzar saying, when my reason returned to me. This is the same as the believer saying that once we were dead in our trespasses, but God has made us alive together with Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a change that takes place, a change of being, a change of heart. There is a conversion. We call this a conversion because that's what it is. There's a, there's a real change. Something has been changed into something else. For the believer, they turn in faith toward God and give Him praise and gratitude for what they have been given. We don't know 
what happened to Nebuchadnezzar after this point. We really don't. We do know one thing. Again, his kingdom was returned to him. Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his work. All his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And we know that he then praised the God of heaven because his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There are a lot of people that come to this point in their lives, maybe even to the point of acknowledging the God of the universe, perhaps some major turning point in their life, some sort of event or situation or something has happened to them. It could even be a happy thing, not necessarily a bad or a sad thing, but that's caused them to all of a sudden see the world differently or in a better light. And there's lots of reasons that someone can be changed permanently in this way. But that doesn't mean that change causes them to turn to God in faith. When Nebuchadnezzar made certain affirmations about God's character, these things anyone can see. Right? We're familiar with the ver- with chapter uh, 1 of Romans, uh, Romans verses 19 and 20 that say this, what can be known about God is plain to them. Right? Even to Nebuchadnezzar, what can be known about God is plain to them. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly perceived. So these things that Nebuchadnezzar affirms here are just things that are clearly perceived to the unbeliever. Anyone who can just look outside and see this, for Nebuchadnezzar, he was made into some sort of beast, but whatever it was, he affirms these things about God. But that's where it stops. Instead of turning to God in submission, rather than honoring God and giving thanks to Him, what Paul says, they remain futile in their thinking. Exchange the immortal God for false gods. The truth about God for a lie. That brings us to the final point, redemption and belief. And I know this is a hard subject because it always involves people that we love, that we know that are going through this thing, right? Or that are just unbelievers. We all want, we all know people who acknowledge God with their lips, but deny them, deny Him with everything else in their lives who recognize that there probably is a God, but really don't think that God has anything at all to do with them. Jesus talked about this at the end of His Sermon on the Mount. If you want to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 5-7 through is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was about two things. You should all live rightly. is what Jesus was telling them. This is how you ought to live. And then He told them about something else. No one can. No one can do that. You think you've followed this commandment, but you haven't really because if you think you've done it, anytime you do just this thing, you've actually broken this commandment. He says that over and over again. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's basically saying, only in Christ can you find salvation and find the ability to live as you ought to live. And we know how he culminates this sermon. And I'm going to read from it. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 through 23. And I think this passage, more than any in the scriptures, helps us understand Nebuchadnezzar 
and those that we know that are just like Him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is our Lord Jesus talking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a familiar parable to many of us. And again, it shows the real difference between Nebuchadnezzar and people who have true faith in God. Not everyone who simply acknowledges God actually knows Him. Just because we have a bunch of degrees doesn't mean anything. Just staying in college a long time and giving them lots of money and then getting all the degrees that you could possibly ever imagine doesn't give you any actual ability to think through all the things that you've paid for them to put into your mind. Knowledge is applied. How do we apply the knowledge that we know? To make it an active part of who we are and everything that we do and how we think. Has it changed the way that we think and, and breathe and act in this world? Whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was converted, we'll find out one day in heaven when he's there or he's not there. It's not going to matter at that point. Most scholars agree that while he acknowledged God's attributes, he never found true faith in Him. But Nebuchadnezzar is not here today. So the question is for you. What about you? True belief and true repentance are found in Christ alone. We sing a hymn here a lot that says, Come ye needy, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify. True belief and true repentance. This is His bounty. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh without money. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. It's only in Christ that true redemption can be found. And the person that has it will demonstrate it in their life. How they speak, how they love others, how they love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so for the unbeliever here, simply saying, yes, there is a God is, is fine. A lot of people say that. The Bible tells us that even the demons acknowledge the fact that there is a God and they're scared of God. Just read the Gospels. The demons were terrified of our Lord Jesus. We don't expect to see those demons in heaven. Simply acknowledging that there is a God is one thing, but saying to Jesus Christ, you are my Lord, is quite another. Cast off the ease and prosperity that you believe can be found in this world and find peace and rest in Jesus. Call upon His name and be saved. For the believer, understand that in this life we will have trouble. It can be through no fault of our own. A lot of times it is. Or it can be a direct result of the choices in our lifestyle. Whatever it is, trust in the Lord. He alone can give you what your heart truly desires. A believer truly desires to know God. A believer truly desires to to live as they ought to live. To, as we read from the catechism today, we a true believer really wants to do what God requires of man, to to follow the revealed will of God. We spend lots of energy going after things that don't last, and we continually find ourselves in pits of our own making. Rest in Jesus. 
Find rest for your souls. Desire nothing more than to make that peace known to others. To those who merely acknowledge God, remind them of the hope that you have in Jesus. Remind them of the God who is coming to judge the quick and the dead. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we, as we read these words and as we pair them with words from the New Testament, even those words that while you were here you spoke, Lord, we pray that as your people that you would help us to know you more. To help us to rest in the fact that we are known by you. That we can't gain a better version of you that we have the whole Christ. Lord, help us to rest in that. And not only that, but help us to be able to share that truth with a world that merely acknowledges God, that they would turn to Him in faith, that they would turn to You and call You Lord. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen. Please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's Word.
to the Lord's table today, we have here set before us a picture of what our Lord Jesus has done for us, even while we were yet his enemies, even while we were on the roof of our own palaces, looking at all that we have made and glorifying in ourselves, he gave himself up as a ransom for us. His body is broken for us, his blood was shed for us, so that we could have redemption, so that we can have eternal life with him. That's why we share this supper together. We await that day when we are with him for all eternity. This isn't merely a picture of what he did for us. Yes, it represents his sacrifice for us, but it also represents the promises of God that are found in Christ. That we know that he is our sure guarantee that the Spirit's presence in our life is our guarantee that these promises are true. That when Jesus said, we will have this supper again, we can rest upon those promises. That our faith in Him has made those promises true for all eternity. And He is the one that keeps those promises. Understand that, that even as we struggle in this life as a believer, that we are always, always somewhere on the road of dealing with difficulty and struggling and struggling with pride and humility and all this different thing. The Lord is the one that keeps those promises. We don't have a different degree of those promises based on how we feel that day. We have the whole cross. We have the whole cross represented here before us today. This table is for those who are community members of this church or of any church. You are invited to come and partake of these elements. For those who aren't, for those who are in unbelief, these elements can do nothing for you. For those who are maybe believers but are holding on to some unrepentant sin that you're unwilling to let go of, rather than take these elements and instead be reconciled to Christ, He is faithful. He's willing to forgive. For those who ask forgiveness, go to Him and find peace and rest. But for those who are invited to this table, he bids us come as his invited guests, not as those who deserve a seat, but as those who have been given one anyway. Before we come to this table, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we are those who have been invited to this table, not through any merit of our own, but through yours. Are we left up to our own, we would be cast out. But because of what you have done for us, we are your invited guests. We are called joint heirs. We are called children of the Most High God. Father, help us to remember that. We pray that you would use these ordinary things to remind us of your promises. That we would remember that they are true, that they are yes and amen in Christ our Lord. That you would not only remind us of those promises, but that you would help us to remind others to show the world that the God that they acknowledge is their only hope for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. This time, Andy and I will distribute the elements. Please help them both in the
Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in the name of me. Take Same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink all of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, even in the difficult passages of your word, even when you seem the most harsh, there's mercy. Lord, help us to remember the mercy that we have been given in abundance. That even as you show us your covenant people discipline, that we remember your mercy and your goodness as we walk with people who are maybe experiencing your judgment that we would offer them truth that we would offer them the same mercies that you've given to us that we would teach them of the peace that passes all understanding in Christ Jesus our Lord Lord help us as your people to rest in that truth and help us to offer that rest to others we pray that as we leave this place and go into a lost world, a confused world. We pray that you would help us. Give us strength. Give us encouragement. Build us up as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand now. Receive the blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go now in His peace. Amen. feel it coming back to me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can control the volume of the room.
yeah. When I feel it up, I can just go up and it helps. And oh, yeah. It doesn't seem like you have to work too hard. No. That's the thing with the mics, you can let them do it for you. You can just make those subtle adjustments. Yeah. I've been doing it for years. And we need it. In the classroom, too. 